0: so let's begin
1: main man main man main man main man main man something for everybody and everybody for something all the people that were working for main man were unusual we were loud ugly Americans basically.
2: Hello and welcome. This is episode 11 in our series that explores the history of Mainman, the innovative management rights company that rewrote the business side of rock and roll in the early 70s, featuring behind the scenes stories from those who experienced the hedonism and excess firsthand. The people that worked for Main Man were all these fabulous know your queens uh, and it was kind of funny it did add to the complete uniqueness of the situation and not only on stage was it theatrical but offstage it was theatrical as well The main man was Tony DeFriesze who mentored a diverse roster of acts that included David Bowie, Amanda Lear, Dana Gillespie John mellencamp, Iggy Pop, Mot the Hoople, Lou Reed, Mick Ronson, and Mick Ralphs. Lou was New York.
0: David was London. And Lou had that personality that it doesn't really exist in New York anymore, but it did then. And it had to do with drugs, it had to do with speed. The drug was speed. All these people, especially around the factory, they took speed. They were very fast talking, witty, quick with the put down, vicious, very, very vicious. And Lou was very bad. He was scary to me,
2: very scary. But he and David were kind of coy with each other. In today's episode, we'll hear more from producer Tony Visconti, talking about the time he and his girlfriend Liz Hartley lived with David and Angie Bowie in Haddon Hall. In early 1970, David, Tony, Mick Ronson and John Cambridge were the hype, who played a gig at the Roundhouse in Camden in North London that is now considered historic because it was the first time the band dressed up in specially made stage clothes and, in so doing, sowed the seeds for what would become glam. Here's Tony recalling how the whole costume idea for the hype began.
0: That was Angie and Liz were talking about it, how scruffy we look, and I think David might have been behind this in the first place. That uh, We did look, you know, we, we looked like any other hippie guys we had long hair and uh jeans you know we we just looked like anyone else and david was already influenced by lindsey kemp and ken pitt about you know he loved the west end and uh, i mean uh, he even had a rock musical in mind and things like that he would talk at that level which to us was still quite alien the the concept of being any to being looking different was really strange to us but we kind of fell into it, you know. We said, "Okay, uh, well," and he said, "How do you see yourselves?" And I said, "Well, you know, I see myself as a, a superhero." <laughs> and they, no one blinked, you know. I and they said, "As the group is called Hype," David said, "You could be Hype Man," and he said, "Okay, I'll be Hype Man." And the girls uh, went about designing it immediately or, or sketching the designs. I know there a lot of sketches were were made. And in the end, you know, we all became hype man. Ronson became gangster man because David came up with this gold lame suit, which I never even knew he owned, but it, it appeared as if out of nowhere. And he also had a golden fedora. Uh, this must have been some costume he was saving for some other day because I had never seen him wear it. There would be no reason to wear anything like that in Beckham anyway, especially at the three tons. So Mick became gangster man. So this is like a, a he was a glam gangster man wearing gold instead of black and pinstripes. We had very little budget left over by this time. So it was John Cambridge. He became pirate man and he wore a, just a bandana around his head. Uh, I think he had a paper mache sword or something like that. <laughs> Mm -hmm. He was behind the drum kit, so it didn't matter what he wore. But you could see the the pirate hat, you know, the pirate bandana. And uh, who's left? Uh, David, you know, David just uh, had—we had a little budget left, and he and Angie bought loads of diaphanous scarves, women's scarves that went from the neck to the floor. They were very long. And he had them attached to some top he was wearing— And so that when he opened his arms to play guitar, they would hang to the side. He tied one of the scarves to the top of the neck of the guitar, and he became Rainbow Man, which was such a prophetic appellation when you think about it. Talk about Bowie being ahead of his time. No one even spoke about the rainbow, you know, in terms of sexuality. But anyway, maybe people were, and I didn't know about it then, but he was Rainbow Man. So with... A lot of confidence. We went to the Roundhouse, and we had no idea what we were. The amount of heckling we'd get, but we thought we were onto something good. It didn't go bad for the most part, but we had a lot of name calling when we walked out in these ridiculous costumes. (laughs) They weren't they weren't too kind, but uh, you know, a lot of nice things happened. We did get applause. the The music, the playing was really, really great, and uh, people did applaud. We were well received. It it took a while. Took about two songs for the crowd to warm up to us. Uh, one thing I love to say about this was um, I was also producing Mark Bolin and Tyrannosaurus Rex, and Mark always had uh, ideas of going electric, and he was in the audience that night, unbeknownst to us. He was right at the side of the stage with a big floppy newsboy cap, and he was covering his his hair, everything. He didn't want his presence to be known. But photographer Ray Stevenson caught a few photos of him just leaning on the stage. His chin is resting on his two arms, which are on the stage itself. But we were too involved to even notice he was there. But there are photographs of Mark Bolin who attended that concert. That was really great knowing that. You know, a lot came out of that concert. A lot of uh, influence for both people came out of that concert. David knew he could do something different now. That was certainly the beginning of The Spiders. It was the idea
2: for The Spiders. A very important concert in terms of shaping the future of rock and roll. The Hype, playing the Roundhouse in Camden on February the twenty second, 1970. With her version of how the Hype prepared for the gig, here's Angie Bowie.
1: You want to hear the whole story? Everything you can. Okay. Because... Here is a guy at Phillips which was the distributor for Mercury called Ralph Mace. And we had a problem. Our problem was a large PA. And we had some shows coming up, including the Roundhouse. So they built Tony Visconti as a carpenter and a very fine one. They built a studio downstairs in the basement of Haddon Hall. The boys weren't bad either. I went to see Ralph Mace and I said, Look, Ralph, I've got to have a PA. I've got to have a PA now. Wem have got a PA that the boy's like, I've got this band. I want you to hear this band. And I want you to give me a check for this band made out to WEM. The band's called Hype. Ralph Mace looked at me. He said, well, let's listen to the tapes. So we cranked up the tapes. The whole fucking building is shaking. He goes, this is an amazing band. I said, yeah. He said, Could it possibly be someone I've heard before? I said, oh, no, I don't think so. I said, just some musicians hanging around, you know. He said, well, let me just get Olaf Viper down here and we'll just write the check. How about that? Seeing as how the band needs the PA, I said, I'm so glad we're all on the same page. (laughs) Off he went, got Olaf Viper, came down, played the tapes. Olaf signed the check. I went to WEM and came back with Roger Fry and the van and the PA. Well homecoming hero. The next thing that happens is, David says to me, I wish we had some money. We could call Natasha. We could get costumes. I said, yeah, I wish we did too. That would be good. Still, I took Kuchar at school. Let's do it. What do you want to be? Who who are we costuming? Who's wearing what? I said, I don't think Rono wants to wear a costume. Trust me on this. I really don't. So David said, "Well, well, uh, what do you think he wants to wear?" I said, "I have an idea. We'll go ask him." Off we went. Rono, what do you want to wear? About um, uh, like like a a gangster suit, Ange. What what do you think? Funnily enough, I just saw one that afternoon while fannying about at Ralph Mace's, I saw this gold gangster suit in Carnaby Street. So I said, "Okay, that's you covered." Okay, Jono, what do you want to be? Oh, I want to be a cowboy. Right, no problem. Tony, superhero, hype man. Ooh, with a big H, yeah, that would work. That would be perfect. And David, then I was left, I had to actually do something. And I was scared shitless, I didn't know what to do. So I went to the markets, and I started thinking about Space Oddity, you know, and I thought, well, it's okay, I mean, he looks pretty, so if I get stuff that's kind of a bit more girly than the gangster outfit and the cowboy outfit, that won't be so bad. Susie Frost and I, lady downstairs who used to watch over Zoe could sew too. So we had done a whole bunch of children's clothes when I was, you know, losing weight after being pregnant and feeling like a fat sow. I said to her, come on dear, we've got to do this fucking shield. We need the H. We need green and red. We need it stuck onto a leotard. She said, oh great, I'll get the wine. So off we went, right? Then I started on the Bowie costume and I I got this fabulous, like, fishnet silver. So then we got David sorted out, and I did it in layers and things. And it was a cute cape, and it looked fine, and he looked beautiful. And they had little mop top of curls, and it was all fine. When I saw the photographs, I wasn't happy. They looked great. The band looked great. David looked fine. He's so pretty. It really didn't matter. But to me, I felt like it was Halloween costumes for children. I was embarrassed. And I said to David, that's it. We're going to get a designer who can stand in when Natasha's busy with television, and we know the designer, and it's Freddie Barretti. And the next, after the show, I went back to the sombrero, got Freddie, and physically delivered him to Haddon Hall and said, you're going to live here for three weeks. Well, it was the only way I could do it. We didn't have any money. You know, I knew I could give him 100, 200 pounds when I got it in, or, or when I managed to collect it, but plus the fabric. It was getting like you know it was get, getting but then i did manage to get tony freeze to pay attention and i got some money from him and then we were able to get everything made and those were the first um, bomber jackets with the pants that tucked into the boots and all of that and david designed those he designed the boots he didn't pick any of the fabrics but he said exactly what he wanted i'd like a bomber jacket that would be cool make it those Sterling Cooper-shaped pants, the ones with the ding, 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 like that up here, and then tight and tuck them into the boots, and he had the boots made at Anello and David, the red leather, red patent leather boots. So that's what happened.
2: Angie Bowie recalling the hype. And Tony, the whole idea of the hype was a means to fund the purpose of new equipment. Well, that's
0: right. Ironically, David had by now run out of money. He went through the advance for Space Oddity quite quickly, but we wanted to take this band on the road, and I had no equipment, no bass gear. I mean, I always played in the studio, so I would play in a studio amp, and I think in the basement I played through something really small, maybe a guitar amp for the rehearsals, and we probably borrowed some gear for the Roundhouse gig, but... And she came up with the idea. Like she helped David get that contract from my, uh, an executive called Olaf Wiper, who ran David's label. And she said, "I can give you this group Hype, who backed David. You know, Tony Visconti's in it, and we could raise some money so that David could go on tour." So that was the purpose of, of Hype being signed. And with that, we bought some more gear, stage gear. Ronson had his own equipment. But I think Woody by that time was in the band for the next part, the next leg of of Hype and David. And he bought some drums, some cymbals. So yeah, we were there. The purpose of Hype was to support David financially and as a backing group.
2: You mentioned that Mark Bolan was at the Hype gig and a few weeks prior to that, you had brought David and Mark together to record The Prettiest Star.
0: Yeah, well The Prettiest Star was the only thing David wrote after Space Oddity because the pressure was on him to have a second hit single. Space Oddity was an enormous success. And I told him, I said, Your song was more of an event than a, a song by an artist. You know, you I said, you know, it wasn't a, a typical rock song. So you're going to have a problem with this next one. And he admitted it. He was finding it very hard to write a follow-up. And the best thing he had written was The Prettiest Star. It was beautiful. It was a lovely mid-tempo ballad. And uh, it had a chorus. It had uh, loads of hooks in it. You know, All the earmarks of a single, but not maybe a hit single. You know, it wasn't going to go to number one. But it was the best we could do. I, I got the studio time. I got a couple of people I enjoyed working with to come into the studio and play with us. And then I thought, well, it needs a guitar solo there. And uh, I'll be the bass player. I'm a, I'm good on bass, but we need a really great guitar player. And, you know, Mark Boland was playing my Stratocaster in my flat in Earl's Court. Every time he visited, he picked it up and played it and played it. And, he, and I could see what a great lead guitarist he was. So he finally bought his own one for... Uh, Uh, at the end of Tyrannosaurus Rex, at the beginning of T-Rex sessions, and uh, I invited him to play, and he played beautifully. He actually did his homework. He took the track home, and he worked out that solo in his little cold water flat in Notting Hill Gate until it was note perfect. And in walks Mark with his little amp, and he sets it up, and David and I were so surprised. We were absolutely knocked out with the solo. And what we didn't notice was how June Boland, Mark's wife, was standing in the corner with a kind of a scowl on her face, which kept growing. I I, I only noticed it towards the end before she exploded with a, a horrible remark saying, in the middle of us complimenting Mark, we were throwing heaps of praise on Mark. And she said to us, Mark is too good to be playing for you. And that just deflated the whole session, you know, all the good feelings. He was embarrassed by it. Mark Boland was embarrassed by it. David and I were aghast. We just didn't know what to say. And the amp he brought with him was just the size of a briefcase. It was a very small, they, these amps were very fashionable in those days. Uh, call it a pig-nose amp. He just left immediately. You know, embarrassed, didn't say goodbye, or well, maybe said bye. I don't know what he said, but David and I was sitting there saying, like, "What the hell was that all about?" <laughs> so, the label accepted it. We liked it. We liked it very much. Uh, we had a guy on drums called Godfrey McLean who played in a a funky Afro jazz group, and David was pleased with his playing. So was I. We did everything right, you know, but. It wasn't the right hit single. And, and, you know, I knew this was going to happen. Not that you have to be a prophet. I'm, I'm not saying I prophesized this, but I knew that it was going to be tough to follow Space Oddity. And it was going to be a while before David, you know, even Hunky Dory didn't produce a single. That was a, a massive hit. It took him a while to think up Ziggy Stardust, which that was the thing he had to do. But at that point, Pretty Star, that wasn't even a
2: pipe dream yet. Here's Angie recalling the first time she heard The Prettiest Star.
1: They did it the day before I came back from Cyprus, so I wasn't there. He brought me from the airport, he took me to the studio, he stood there and he said to Ken, play it loud for her. And he said, this is what I've written for you. Mark played guitar. And I kind of stood there and listened to it, and then I thought, all right, (laughs) I better perform now, you know?
2: It's been well-documented, but David and Mark had both a respect and a rivalry over the following years.
1: But you got to remember, we were kids. So, you know, all this Tony, you know, chatting away about how lovely it was. We were fucking rivals. We were... Really? Heads to the fuck. Oh, David, oh, best friends. Oh, Marky, how's it going? That fucking son of a bitch. You know, and, and they did like each other very much, you know.
2: Tony, this must have been a really interesting time for you, producing Mark Bolan and Tyrannosaurus Rex while also living with David and playing in the hype.
0: Yes, that was the whole purpose of being there. Unless I was working with Mark Bolan, I would go to to London and do a recording session because I was continuously making new records with Mark. I think we were up to the third Tyrannosaurus Rex album by then. And even if I got home at night, I know we didn't... Mark and I didn't work late until the night. If I got home for 8 o'clock, we'd go downstairs and rehearse because basically there was nothing else to do. I'm not sure we even had a telly yet. (laughs) So there was nothing else to do. And it was a joy. It was a pleasure.
2: So all up, your time at Haddon Hall is remembered fondly.
0: You know, Beckenham was a microcosm of London. We had everything down there. We had friends who were really cool, and we had the three tons, which I think without the three tons, it would have been very hard... For David to get started as well, because he auditioned all his songs at the Three Tons in front of a very discerning crowd, albeit some of them were friends, but you know, some of them were hardcore folk enthusiasts and uh. That was very important to be there at that time and have the three tons so available to us. Now, apparently, it's an Italian restaurant, so, you know, Beckenham is just Beckenham, you know, another London suburb. But it was so important to be there at that time and to have all these opportunities without traipsing to London every other day. Haddon Hall was a big deal in my life, and that's what's great about it. I, I am recognizing how important this was to be there at that time.
2: Tony Visconti and Angie Bowie, recalling their early days at Haddon Hall, 50 years ago. There is some great archive from the Haddon Hall period in Bowie's career that is part of an ever-growing collection of memorabilia, a lot of it never seen before, that we're adding to the Main Man website each week. A fantastic record of a very exciting period in rock history. It's all at mainmanlabel.com. And you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. In the next episode, we'll hear from another larger-than-life character who was a regular visitor to Haddon Hall, photographer Mick Rock. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening.